weird, exotic, one of a kind. I thought that was going to be a video about Dwight, but it uh, ended up being about VBS. <laughs> I love Dwight. Thank you. You probably noticed in the fireside area back here by the west doors that uh, there's some things set up in regards to our Renew campaign. We've been talking about this master planning effort for, oh, six, eight months around here. And so we've gotten finally to a place where uh, we really want uh, the church to begin to see the work that's been done. And we'll be at a place next week, next Sunday at, at lunch, where we want you to, to vote on the campaign, uh, to enter into to raising mon- funds to... Uh, to, to, to fund phase one of our master plan. And phase one of our master plan is, is spelled out in this booklet here that you can find back there by the west doors in the fireside area. And uh, the design of this booklet was done by Kevin Friesen. He did a great job. So designed by Kevin Friesen, typos by me. So if you find a couple of typos, which you will, uh, those, were, those were mine, but the great design here is by Kevin. And I uh, want, want to encourage you that if you have questions uh, about our Renew campaign, about our master planning efforts, uh, you can come tonight. We're going to have a Q&A session. Probably just have it in this room here uh, at 6 o'clock. We invite you to come back and uh, just visit with us uh, about some of the thinking that went into uh, to this whole project. So excited about everything going on there. Exciting days ahead as well. Turn to Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6. We're going to be in verse 14 here in just a few minutes. The year was uh, 1958. The world's attention was on the country of Sweden, host to the biggest event in all of sports, the World Cup. And a surprise to many, the tournament's biggest story had become a 17-year-old from Brazil. In Brazil's quarterfinal win over Wales, this soccer phenom became, became the youngest man to ever score a World Cup goal. He went on to register a hat trick in a semifinal victory over France, which set up a final match showdown with the host country, Sweden, in Stockholm. And in the 55th minute of the tournament final, the heavily guarded 17-year-old, he trapped a well-driven pass on his chest. He managed to kill the pace of the ball before brilliantly flicking it over the head of another defender and then fired a low, powerful volley past the goalkeeper. It's called the single greatest goal in World Cup history. He would go on to score another goal in the match, and Brazil would defeat the host country by the score of 5-2, to two, taking the 1958 World Cup. The young man's name was Edson Arantes do Nascimento. The world would know him as Pele. Jared went to the first service. And he would become... The greatest soccer player of the 20th century, maybe even into the 21st. Pele would go on to lead Brazil to another World Cup title in 62, and then again in 1970. In 66, he was playing with an injury, so uh, they failed to reach the final. He scored more goals in international competition than anybody ever or since. Pele was an athlete so timeless that the restaurant Subway is still using him in their endorsements. I don't know if you've seen this, but he's still a public figure, still being used. Uh, Michael Jordan, Johnny Unitas, LeBron James, no athlete has ever been as famous on a global scale as Pele. And I bring up fame because it's fame that introduces our sermon text for today. 
Last week we saw that Jesus sent the disciples, these 12 men that he had called to follow him, he sent them out as apostles. These sent ones were given by Jesus the authority of Jesus, which is interesting because up until this point in Mark, the only one with authority is Jesus. And the authority we see Jesus demonstrate is it is total. Every realm, both physical and metaphysical, he has power over. But now he sends his disciples out. He makes them apostles. And their mission mirrored the authoritative ministry of Jesus. Namely, they would preach repentance and they would perform miracles. That's what they did. It was strategic and apparently it was effective because verse 14 says that the word about Jesus had reached King Herod. Jesus' ministry had multiplied. His power was now everywhere. He is famous. And just as an aside to this point about the mission of the disciples, the point of going on mission for Jesus is to make Jesus famous. So any mission trip that fails to exalt or bring attention to or preach the saving power of Jesus or at least support that kind of ministry really isn't a mission trip. These 12 men had been on a mission trip because the fame of Jesus had increased, so much so that the word of his name reached Herod. And this detail that the name of Jesus had been made known to Herod, I think this proves that Herod was incredibly out of touch with the masses. The masses in Galilee, for over a year at this point, had been enthralled by Jesus, amazed by Jesus, mystified by Jesus. Thousands and thousands had been listening to him teach and witnessing his great acts of power. It's the opinion of Bible teacher John MacArthur that Jesus had basically eradicated disease from the entire region of Galilee and possibly all of Israel. So now word of this movement finally reaches the king. And truth of the matter was, Herod was not a king. He was a tetrarch, which means he was allowed by Rome to rule a certain region of Israel. But all he was to do would be on the leash of Rome. He had no real authority. He did what Rome told him to do. So even the use of the word king there in verse 14 is really kind of a mocking of Herod. He did not have the absolute authority of a king. In fact, he would eventually travel to Rome and request that Caligula, the Roman emperor, make him king of Palestine. And of course, Caligula refused, and in so doing, he banished Herod to the region of Gaul, or what we know of as France. He essentially demoted him and exiled him, and Herod would die there as a pauper. And Mark's original audience of Christians, those in the city of Rome, would have known that story. And that's important because it shows that Mark isn't just introducing some tribal leader from some distant Roman province, some guy that they had no connection with. No, Herod would have been a known figure, somewhat infamous for for desiring to be a wannabe king. And as I mentioned to you before, this Herod is Herod Antipas. So he's son of Herod the Great. There's lots of Herods to sort out in the first century. This is son of Herod the Great. Herod the Great is the Herod of Matthew 2. 
the man that massacred all the baby boys of Jerusalem because he received word that a king had been born. So the diabolical Herod the Great died in 4 B.C., and his kingdom was broken down into tetrarchs, each ruled by one of his sons. So the area of Galilee and then south along the Jordan to the Dead Sea, a region called Perea, was the portion given to Herod Antipas. You can look in your maps in the back of your Bible and see kind of the way those tetrarchs were broken up. And as we get into this text this morning, Mark chapter 6, verse 14 is where we'll begin. You'll notice that the narrative itself isn't really about Herod, though he's, he's certainly a, a key figure in the story. And it's not so much about Jesus either. There are only two stories in the book of Mark that are not principally about Jesus. We find them here in this text and in chapter 1. And the subject of both of those stories is John the Baptist. So whenever Mark breaks from talking about Jesus Christ, he does so to tell us about John the Baptist. Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest man who ever lived. He was Jesus' cousin. He was the first person to really know or accept who Jesus was when his mother Elizabeth was visited by Mary, both of them pregnant, Elizabeth with John, Mary with Jesus. When Mary came to visit Elizabeth to tell her that the angel had told her she was going to have a son, the account in Luke chapter 1 says that John the Baptist leapt inside the womb of his mother Elizabeth. Remarkable. And if that's not enough, an angel of the Lord appeared to John the Baptist's father, a priest named Zechariah, and he told him that he and Elizabeth would have a son and they were to name him John And the angel promised that John would, from Luke 1, be filled with the Holy Spirit. He would turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will go before him, him being Jesus, in the spirit and power of Elijah. He would turn the hearts of the fathers to children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. And he would make ready for the Lord a people prepared. John would be the last of the Old Testament prophets. God had been silent in Israel for 400 years. No prophet had been raised up to speak for the Lord. And so the Lord sends John. And he sends him in the spirit of Elijah to make a way, prepare the way for Jesus. Which gets us to the text for today. And today, instead of reading the whole narrative like I normally do, we're going to read it in sections. And I'll just sort of give a, a running commentary as we work through this vivid and tragic story. And I've broken it down into five major sections. And yes, I managed to attach a word starting with the letter C to each major section. I got some grief this week about my alliteration. I tend to alliterate with my outlines. And I told Jared about midweek, I said, I'm going to alliterate your face off this week in my sermon, so get ready. Five words starting with the letter C. Let's start in verse 14 at the conscience of a quote-unquote king. Verse 14, King Herod heard of it, heard of the ministry of Jesus, heard of the ministry of the disciples of Jesus, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Others said he is Elijah, and others said he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. So the sum here are those around Herod, those close to Herod, his officials and the like, and they're all speculating about who and how this movement is happening. 
And at the heart of it all is the true identity of this Galilean rabbi. The heart of their speculation is one question. Who is Jesus? Is it John the Baptist raised from the dead? Is it Elijah whose coming had been promised in Malachi 4? Is it a prophet like one from the Old Testament era? Herod favored the first view, and not because of any particular evidence, but because of his own guilty conscience. His guilty conscience made him overly superstitious. Have you ever violated your conscience and thought that suddenly, man, everybody's out to get me? It's a miserable thing. You turn a little neurotic and paranoid. You are overwhelmingly suspicious that your deeds will be exposed, and at worst, they might be avenged. This is where Herod is living. It's a proverb that says, The wicked flee when no one is pursuing. And such is the case with Herod. He feared that John the Baptist might be returning to haunt him. And so the rest of the narrative tells us why Herod was thinking this way. Let's look at verse 17. There we see how Herod and John the Baptist became acquainted. And in it, we have the confrontation from a prophet. Verse 17, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, It is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. Okay, so here's what you need to know about the marriage of King Herod. And I want you to hold on because this gets complicated and sort of disgusting at the same time. We have a visit by Herod to Rome. And in that visit, Herod Antipas had stayed in the home of his half-brother, Philip. And this is not Philip the Tetrarch. This is a different Philip. And he stayed with his half-brother and his wife, who was also his half-niece, a woman named Herodias. And Herodias and the half-brother, Philip, they had a daughter named Salome. Herodias, however, was not content to be the wife of a commoner. And so she was very impressed by Herod Antipas. And so they entered into an adulterous affair, and secretly they plotted to divorce their own spouses so that they could marry one another. All right? It gets a little thicker. This presented a problem because Antipas was married to the daughter of Aratus, who was the king of Arabia. King Aratus was not going to take kindly to the divorce of his daughter, so Antipas and Herodias, they reasoned together that it would be best if they could have her killed, but it needed to look like an accident. All right, we have just a regular first century soap opera going on here. Problem is, the princess, she found out about the plot. She runs home to her dad, the king of Arabia. And so with his wife gone, Herod wasted no time in bringing Herodias to live with him in Galilee and marrying her. And incidentally, later on in Herod's rule, his army would be defeated by the king of Arabia, something that obviously wouldn't have happened had he not made this mistake. So everyone in Galilee knew what was happening. Everyone gossiped about this situation, but at the same time, no one said anything publicly. No one said anything to Herod or his court. No one except, guess who? John the Baptist. John spoke out against Herod. John's ministry was to call people to repentance 
And this involved pointing out sin, especially when it was evident among the leaders of the people. And, and, and in doing so, what John did was he brought down the wrath of Herodias. Remember, she was an ambitious woman. She had left her husband because she wanted the, the prestige of being a queen. She would tolerate nothing in her way. Certainly not a meddling prophet from the wilderness. And if you know your Old Testament, you see that Herodias is behaving just exactly like Jezebel, the wife of Ahab. Jezebel hated a prophet as well, the prophet Elijah, and he, she hated him because he openly rebuked King Ahab. So just like Jezebel of old, who, who sought to have Elijah killed, Herodias was out to kill John. There was only one problem. The problem was Herod. The text spells out two things about John and Herod's relationship. First, Herod was afraid of John. He was afraid of John. He knew that John was exactly right in what he had been saying. John had said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herod knew that that was absolutely true. And so he found it difficult to put a man to death for telling the truth. The historian Josephus adds that Herod was also afraid of the public backlash if he were to put John to death. At the same time, Herod enjoyed listening to John. The text says Herod heard him gladly. Herod liked John. There was something about the preaching of John the Baptist that Herod longed to hear. Think about it. All day long, people told Herod what he wanted to hear. Yes, King Herod. Whatever you say, King Herod. Whatever you need, King Herod. But John didn't pander to him. He confronted him. And perhaps through John's confrontation, Herod felt the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps he saw a man that actually loved him. Because it's love for the sinner that leads us to confront them, not condemnation. Maybe Herod actually felt loved by John. Whatever the case, the words of John had a unique effect on Herod. And it left Herod in a quandary. Should he believe the words of John and leave his adulterous relationship? Or should he reject the prophet and hand him over to his wife? What's he to do? And there's a profound principle in all this, and it's the fact that truth moves people. Truth is not neutral, which is, which is why Christians will not stay out of the crosshairs of a broader culture that is hostile to the truth. Truth moves people, one way or the other. Everyone has a conscience God has not left himself without witness in the hearts of the lost, in the hearts of the unconverted. Fallen and corrupt as man is, there are thoughts within him that are from God and they will not be shut out. Thoughts of conscience that can make even kings like Herod restless and afraid. We have this friendless, solitary preacher with no other weapon than God's truth, disturbing and terrifying a king. But despite the fear toward John, despite Herod's appreciation for John's convictions and the way in which he, he, he speaks the truth, Herod would not cease from his adultery. He would not give up Herodias. And so this unrepentant sin would end up being Herod's demise. 
I need to just say one other word on this idea of confrontation. We live in a world of Herodiuses. People who want no part of the truth of God when it comes to how they're to live, who they're to marry, why they should not divorce, that God has a way to follow. The broader culture wants none of our truth related to those things. But Christians, you and I, we have to find a way to not be silent. We have to find a way to confront sin in those areas. And in so doing, we need to be willing to be hated. But at the same time, like John, there has to be something about our confrontation that is winsome. Something for the conscience of the sinner to be drawn to. And it might, in my mind, it might just be the difference between being critical and being confrontive. Being critical and being confrontive. Tim Keller says, we must not be quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. And I think the difference between those two things is simply this. Criticism is a point of the finger. Confrontation is an arm around the shoulder. Criticism of sin and foolishness, it lacks humility. Confrontation, however, is often done with tears in your eyes, a heart for the sinner, a compassion in telling the truth. So Herod seems responsive to John's rebuke, but the heart of Herodias is hard and brazen. Let's move to the next few verses where we see the collusion of a wife and daughter. Verse 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guest, guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what should I ask? And she said, The head... Of John the Baptist. So this is the only place in the New Testament that mentions someone's birthday. Pharaoh's birthday is mentioned in the Old Testament, so two mentions of a birthday in the entire Bible, both of them wicked rulers. I don't really have a point with that, just that it's interesting, maybe. To me it is. It's Herod's birthday. He throws himself a party. When you're a wicked king or wannabe king, no one's going to throw a party for you. You've got to throw yourself a party. And the reason this is called an opportunity for Herodias is she knew what kind of parties Herod usually threw. Be lots of powerful people, lots of eating, lots of drinking, everything that goes along with parties like that. And this is where Herodias turns really wicked. She uses her daughter to trap Herod. Again, her daughter's name is Salome, and we get that name from historian Josephus. It's not in Scripture. And it's her daughter from her first marriage, a girl probably 15, maybe 16 years of age. Herodias sends in her daughter to dance for the men. This is a men-only party, and we know that because Salome has to leave the room to ask her mother what she, she, what she should request. So she goes in to dance for the men, and maybe some of you are like, well, you know, maybe she's a good dancer. And that may be true, but given the crowd, given the occasion, given the wine that was flowing, the dance was probably not artistic. 
It was seductive and it was sensual, and I'll just leave it at that. The dance worked. Herod offered the girl up to half his kingdom, which is funny because Herod didn't even have a kingdom. All he had belonged to Rome. So she goes off with this promise. She concludes with her mother, and she goes back into the party to ask for the head of John the Baptist, which brings us to the cowardice of a weak man, verse 25. And she came in immediately with the haste with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. She kind of adds her own little thing on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. He went and beheaded him in the prison. Verse 26 is just so tragic. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word. The phrase exceedingly sorry can also be translated exceedingly sorrowful, same phrase. And it's the phrase that would describe the anguish and sorrow of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Herod does not want to do this. And it would have been perfectly reasonable for him to say, Salome, I said I'd give you anything. I didn't say I would commit murder for you. He could have said that. But it's drunkenness and pride that causes you to make foolish promises. And that same drunkenness and pride that keeps you from acting rationally when faced with the consequences of those promises So in an act of cowardice, he caves to the pressure around him and immediately sends an executioner with orders to bring John's head. Anytime, anytime you place the opinions of people over the opinions of the Lord, you're going to make a bad decision. Herod had invited the lords and the military commanders and the leading men of Galilee to a party to impress them He wanted them to think highly of him. And this is why he's been trying to act like a king. Strong inferiority complex in Herod. And his wife knows it, and she traps him into this evil deed. John the Baptist, the greatest man who ever lived, died at the will of a lustful man. Make no mistake, lust led to this. Herod had a lust for Herodias, taking her unlawfully as his wife. He had a lust for power that made him want to impress the crowd he had gathered. It was a sensual lust that had led him to make such a foolish promise to the dancing Salome. You mess with lust, and it will leave a path of destruction in its wake. It just will. It's not a small sin. It's not a manageable sin. It's not a personal sin that doesn't affect others. It's a destructive sin. Nowhere in the Bible does lust lead to subtle consequences. Not Samson, not David, not in Sodom, certainly not here. Men, if lust is an issue for you, which it probably is, by God's grace, find the heart of Joseph and run from it. Run. Let's look at our last point. The cost of discipleship, beginning in verse 28. 
So the executioner comes and he brings the head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, John's disciples, heard of this, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. You might remember last week I said that this passage, this story of Herod's execution of John the Baptist, is the middle part of another Markan sandwich this literary device that Mark uses time and time again. And I've said before that it's the center portion of the sandwich that gives the most insight on how we're to understand the whole thing. So if you get the middle, if, if you understand the middle, you understand the entire passage, the entire sandwich. Well, the top and bottom of the sandwich are the sending of the twelve and then the return of the twelve. These men that went out preaching repentance, doing miracles that served to validate that message of repentance. And then we have John in the middle who had been preaching repentance also. And it was his call to repentance that got him imprisoned. It was a call to repentance that got him killed. And that's where we begin to understand the meaning of this Mark and Sandwich. The meaning of why Mark would insert this story between the sending out and return of the disciples. Every one of these disciples, every one of the twelve, save the Apostle John, would pay the ultimate price for preaching the gospel of Jesus. They all end up executed. The Apostle John was imprisoned. He was exiled on the island of Patmos, Patmos, so it's not like he went unscathed. Every one of the twelve would go the way of John the Baptist. They would tell the truth, the world would hate their truth, and they would be unjustly punished. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called The Cost of Discipleship. In that book, he said, every commandment of Jesus is a call to die. And he meant that a lot of different ways, but on Sunday, April 8th, 1945, three weeks before the end of the Second World War, The Nazis took him from his prison cell in Flossenburg, and they hanged him. His last words to a cellmate, he pulled the man close, and he said, This is the end, but for me, it's the beginning of life. N.T. Wright, Bible scholar from Britain, wrote in his commentary on this passage, he said, The kingdoms of this world are indeed to become the kingdom of God. That's our eschatological hope. But those who speak of this in advance are likely to suffer the anger of those who feel their power slipping away from them. I have to believe every true disciple, whether it was one of the twelve, whether it was John the Baptist, whether it was one of the multitude of martyrs over the last 2,000 years, they've all uttered something like the words of Bonhoeffer, this is the end. But for me, it's the beginning of life. And you have to see what an encouraging message this would be for the Christians in Rome. That's who this gospel was originally read by and written to. And it was a remarkable encouragement for them to stick with the message of repentance, to be faithful to the gospel witness, no matter what the authorities, no matter what Nero might do to them, no matter if they're... The the end of them would be the end that John the Baptist suffered for them to remain faithful. And just to conclude, just point out one other thing about this passage. 
In this story, we have a weak and cowardly man giving in to the pressure of the crowd that had gathered, that he had gathered. And though he knew it was wrong, he had this godly man executed. Does that at all sound familiar? It should. Because this exact same thing would happen to Jesus. The weak man on the day of Jesus' death would be Pontius Pilate. And though Pontius Pilate would come to a place and say, I find no fault in Jesus, he would also give in to the pressure of the crowd and have him killed. The Son of God, executed on a Roman cross. And the question that led to both of these executions was, who is Jesus? Herod thought he might be the ghost of a man he had killed wrongly. Thus, our story from Mark here. Pilate was told he was the king of the Jews, and that's how he prosecuted him. Either way, your answer to that question is the most important answer in the universe. Who is Jesus? That's what Mark wants you to know and discover. That's why he wrote this gospel, so that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is not Elijah, he is not one of the prophets of old, he is not John the Baptist, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And you need to know him. And what it means to know him is to believe in him, to trust in him, to repent of your sins and put your faith in him. And again, repentance, as we sang this morning, is a kindness from God to bring you to a place where you are finally humble enough to receive the grace of God. Because God resists the proud. Do we not see that in this text? But he gives grace to the humble. We need the Spirit in this, do we not? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this amazing story that you've inserted here in Mark chapter 6. And Lord, it compels us and challenges us on so, so many levels. Lord, may we be not a critical people, but a confrontive people, a, a, a group of people that tell the truth. But God, keep us from being obnoxious, keep us from being brazen. Lord, put compassion in us. Put tears in our eyes because of the condition of the world around us. And as we lovingly confront, Lord, I pray that the world, they may not like us, or they may not like our confrontation, but they, for some reason, would like us. They would gladly hear us, God. The conscience you've put in them would somehow be drawn to the truth being explained. God, if there's anybody here whose conscience is just blowing up this morning, firing in all sorts of ways, God, I pray that they would, they would run to you, they would repent and trust in you, that they would, they would maybe for the first time express faith in you. Lord, thank you for this time and for this place and people, this opportunity to gather. It's indeed a privilege. I pray that all that's said and done here, preached and sung, would give glory to the name of your great son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.